Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast for American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Van Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, the editor of City Journal. I'm Aaron Savariam, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. Aaron, how are you doing this week? It's really hot out, Charles. That's why I don't go outside. It's ro- right. I mean, I and that's I that's lazy and bad for you because vitamin D is important. It's not. But that's that's that that no. Nah. It's a conspiracy. Oh, that's, that's a conspiracy. You, you think that you think eating that and and seed oils. Yeah, both are conspiracies. Okay. Well, you know it's funny. So so it's been so hot that I I haven't gone outside that much. But I have to say I I generally enjoy the heat. I like going to the pool. I I prefer it to be really hot than really cold. I like that I can go outside. You scoff. You scoff, Charles. But but I like the heat. The the downside of the heat, as we learned, I think in part a couple summers ago, is that hotter weather tends to conduce towards crime and towards political people and revolutions. Speaking of revolutions and political unrest and, shall we say, glorious revolutions, Charles, what are we going to be talking about today? Our our, our guest today is Mary Harrington. She's a UK-based writer, a self-identified reactionary feminist, and a contributing editor at Unheard, where she writes, I believe, a weekly column. Mary, thank you so much for joining us on Institutionalized. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so let me, I guess, open with a question that I alluded to earlier. So, Mary, you were at the National Conservatism Conference last year. What did you, in your in your time at the conference, what did you observe about this branch of the post-Trump conservative movement relative to what you're used to in the UK? What did you see that was similar? What did you see that was different? What was that experience like? Well, to be fair, I've not been to a whole lot of conservative conferences in the UK. And in my experience, political conferences are always a bit weird because the kind of people who go to political conferences are basically weirdos. And I include myself in that in that company. I mean, you have to be a bit eccentric to be that into it. So, I mean, it's, you know, I, I, I don't want to infer anything too sort of too, too about America or the American right generally. But, but I was... From the top, my, my first impression, as well as OMFG, Florida is just wild, was was the sense of, you know, an enormous amount of arm wrestling going on underneath an extremely friendly surface, which is kind of what you'd expect in any sort of, you know, nascent emerging political movement. There's a lot of a lot of historic um, influences, historic groupings, and and a lot of sort of new young pretenders coming in who are, who who kind of want want their want their seat at the table, and there's a lot of kicking of ankles going on underneath the table while people try and figure out where they are. Another striking feature was the the appearance in the coalition of anti woke liberals, and there was a lot of muttering backstage about whether or not that was actually a sensible thing to do, you know, or whether that in fact made the tent too big. I mean, the but the last impression I came away with, and the abiding impression I've come away with, and uh, Yoram Hazani, who very very kindly invited me, and who I, I'm immensely grateful to for the opportunity, will probably not thank me for saying this, but I feel like the most profound division in among the attendees there were between the people who thought it was funny that there was a jug of soy milk on the coffee cart and the people who didn't get the joke. And I think that's and that's fundamentally about the internet, but it's also about a whole worldview. When I wrote when I wrote up my conference experience for Unheard, I called that the distinction between conservative ink spelled I N C and conservative ink, as in they they have tattoos, and they're they're two very different they're two very different groups, and I don't I don't think conservative ink with a K is going to be wielding serious power for another ten years, and when it does, things are just going to go nuts. I mean, <laughs> more nuts than they are now. 
because uh-huh. those guys the, the, those guys don't read i don't know i don't know who, who you guys read like harry jaffer or whoever, whoever that is you know, you, you guys you know, they, these guys these guys don't read they they read like they read aristotle and nietzsche and evola and just a whole bunch of really of currently really quite out there stuff and their worldview is just very different right um, and, they, and, they, also, and they and they they read them through the the lens of a bronze age poet, famous yeah. scholar yeah bronze age river uh <laughs> we can we can include a link in the show notes if if anyone doesn't know who that is um, right so 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 i think so so i mean we're, we're talking about big tent in the sense of including like dave rubin or douglas murray um you know so so there's neocons who are right out at i would say the liberal end of the spectrum and then at the other end of the spectrum there's i don't really know quite how to describe it but it's just really not that and I th- and there are there are some tensions there which are really right. only just starting to bite. And how how that's going to reshape the activist end of the movement, I think it's it's too early to tell. But, so but me, certainly, go on. I was going to say, let me let me tie that into sort of my opening thought, which is just you know I I tend to think of the United States as being a much more classically liberal country than again its peer countries in Europe or in the UK. You know, you I I would think about unheard as being which which you write as being sort of a bastion for classical liberalism online, if it's anything. But how do you think about classical liberalism? Play uh, right. You're, you're you're sort of alluding to classical liberalism being the sort of weird bedfellow in the current conservative coalition. How do you sort of see it faring both here and across the pond, and even more importantly in, in the UK? I think it's toast. Okay. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I mean, it's you know, thing, things can kind of lurch on for a long time after they've died, but 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 I think it's you know the the, the real you know free speech absolutist. I believe I will defend to the death your right to say it. Enlightenment guys are like their day is gone. The internet no longer makes that no longer possible or no longer very workable in the same way. You know, once you have once you have absolutely everybody with a voice online via the internet, you have to have censorship. You cannot. You can no longer have free speech absolutism. Once you have the kind of total moral relativism that the internet propagates, you can no longer. You no longer have the shared set of you know the the baseline set of shared common values that you need in order to have that kind of public square and public debate that's that's just assumed as the sort of bedrock of everything by classical liberalism. The internet just blows the entire foundation of classical liberalism out of the water, including its conception of what a human self is. And as such, you know, it's reports of the of the absolute depth of classical liberalism are, you know, greatly exaggerated. But I think that it's it's on, you know, we we have a straightforward choice. You know, we either we either wave a fond farewell over the next 10, 15 years to classical liberalism or we unplug the internet, one or the other. You can't have both. So so this this is great. And this actually leads into something I was gonna ask later, but might as well ask it now. You've also, I think, argued that the internet can have these sort of homogenizing tendencies too. I think you wrote an essay for American Affairs where you say that there's a homogenized feminist discourse and you say that it's been homogenized in in various ways by the internet. So could you talk a bit more about the tension between sort of on the one hand, this grand, chaotic, decentralizing tendency of the internet that seems to make classical liberalism unworkable. And on the other hand, this kind of emergent, phenomena where across different countries, like memes will sort of cross-pollinate and discourses will kind of coalesce and maybe lose some of their, the the distinctiveness that they would have had in in past eras. There's quite a lot going on there. I suppose the, the first thing I, I should say is to qualify my, my grand 
declaration of the death of classical liberalism by saying that you can, in fact, still have you can have you you can have these nice things, but only in gate kept communities. Mm-hmm. So you can you can have a lovely cozy group chat where where the membership is carefully vetted, and you can still have absolute free speech and shared values and and healthy debate and all of that good stuff, but you can't do it in the open. Right. So so what I, I suppose I would I would qualify what I said by saying it's not that classical liberalism is toast, but that it fractal it, it fractures into classical liberalism's plural. Mm, interesting. And you know, and how how that will play out, I don't know. I think it's too early to tell. In terms of in terms of sort of global homogenization, in fact, I don't think I don't I don't think what we're looking at is a global homogenization of anything. What we're looking at is just a kind of weird superficial merging of American political and cultural discourse with other Anglophone political and cultural discourses. You know, mm-hmm. on, on the surface, it looks as though England and the, United, the UK and America now have the same political culture, which is not in fact true outside elite circles at all. And you only really have to scrape, or and you only really have to scrape the surface of elite discourse to see that it's not even really true across those geographies either. I am still laughing about I forget which American paper it was, but there was a, there was a liberal paper that when when Joe Biden when they when they you guys finally decided after five years or whatever it was that Joe Biden had won the election against Trump. It was the 5th of November in the UK, and you you may or may not be aware, but that's Bonfire Night, which is a big celebration of something which happened a few hundred years ago. We let off a lot of fireworks on Bonfire Night, mm-hmm. and a couple or one or one or possibly more American papers wrote this up as London setting off fireworks in order to celebrate Joe Biden having won. <laughs> we all laughed a lot, um, <laughs> but I, but I think I, I suppose I would. I, I, I would gently suggest that anyone who's who's claiming a great homogenization has taken place in political culture is probably American and probably just isn't listening very hard and probably is just used to being at the center of at, at the at the center of the political maelstrom. You know, there's a the, there's a sense in which you guys who you mean you still you still are the global political monopole by and large still in some respects anyway. Certainly culturally, you know, America is still the global hegemon and. And I think you're just used to being on broadcast mode, and so it so it might feel like we all have the same political culture, but that's that's not really so. So I want to so I want to address something out there, which is that you said, and it is it it does sort of make sense to me to say that perhaps there's a there's a subset of the British elite even who are acclimated to American political culture, and then there's there's a there's a disconnect between them and the the average British person who may be that is accurate. Yes. Yeah. So so. Well, how do you see those tensions? What 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 are the values of the average British person that are at odds with the sort of American the the, the Americanized culture? What are the what are the things that have resisted? Well, I'd be I'd be cautious of you know making any grand claims about you know having insight into the average British person. You know, at, at the end of the day, I'm more I'm more a member of the the smug, self satisfied international elite than not. I'm I'm very online. To be fair, I don't live in London. I live I live I live in small town Britain, which is so I'm not I'm not slap bang in the middle of sort of BBC land, if you like. But I mean, if I were to point at some obvious disjunctions between the conversations I have locally and the conversations I have when I see media colleagues in London, I would I would look at things like the trans discourse just doesn't doesn't really have any cut through outside outside very online circles, not really. Apart from apart from with people perhaps who are under twenty. 
but you know, so say sort of Gen X or Gen X or older people in, in outside outside the metropolis just really couldn't care less about that. And if they if they have any awareness of it at all, they just think it's stupid. You know, there are the immigration debate is is divisive. People love the Queen. People people love Britain. The elite is is very much more self loathing. People are also, the further you go down the socioeconomic hierarchy, they're actually, in my opinion, less racist the further, the further down you go the hierarchy. There's a kind of peculiar inverted racism that you, that you find amongst university-educated liberals right at the top who treat minority ethnic populations as a kind of client, a kind of client population to be patronized and then get very offended when they don't utter, utter the, 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 the correct opinions in, as a, by way of gratitude. I mean, there, there are all kinds of all kinds of complicated tensions all all over the place. You know, Britain, Britain you know, it's a we're, we're a place with a long history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the union the union is fragile, and you know, has been has been showing signs of of coming coming adrift for some time. We still haven't really got to grips with in what what our country is since the end of the British Empire. We haven't really got to grips with what what we even think about having been an empire. That- there's, the, the, there's a lot going on. It's a mess. That's interesting, though, because that all everything you just said could plausibly have an analog in the United States. Yeah, apart from the fact that you guys aren't really post-imperial yet. There's a, I mean, not quite. Well, I was, I was going to say that that one could be post Cold War. Like the way you're describing the identity crisis is how I I hear people like even Fukuyama sort of say, "Oh, we had this identity crisis after the Cold War, end of history." It was boring, but then the, you know, that was inherently unstable. But also, I mean, the, the biggest thing that, that just struck me was, you know, the, this, both the inverted racism and the, the, the general sense that there's the divide between the kind of cultural politics of the London elite and the rest of Britain. I mean, that sounds a lot like how people talked about the United States following 2016. And they said, well, there's this big divide between kind of the cultural educated elites and you know the heartland so i guess one one question is even within the elites what are some of the differences maybe between how uk elites think about some of these issues and you and us elites if any i may not be the best person to speak to that my my sense is that just perhaps just by virtue of britain being smaller things are just perhaps a bit less shouty you just so it's it's just a it's just a smaller pool of people at the top full stop right so it's it's just it it's not it's perhaps not quite as zero sum and but and i don't but perhaps british people are just a bit more i don't know low key anyway they all, um, but, they all went I mean, to the my, same two schools right too not quite I mean, not, uh, yeah, that's, like... that, that's kind of that's kind of a stereotype. But I, I remember a, a, a great a, a friend of mine, Jacob Phillips, once once cracked a joke. He said he said that you know the difference between American and British post liberalism, which I take to be to mean essentially reactionary politics or, or the new right, if you like. The the difference between between the two is that the British one is kind of like Britpop. You know, it's all sort of twee, and then people go off and become cheesemakers afterwards, and then everyone goes on picnics and says, Has, "Have a cup of tea, and isn't it nice." And the American one is more like a raven in an abandoned warehouse, where it's all just really apocalyptic. Yeah, and I, uh, <laughs> to, to me that feels true. And it's only become, you know, since he said it a couple of years ago, it's only become truer. You know, there's a definite, there's a definite kind of rave at the end of the world kind of vibe about the American right, or at least the emerging American right, that perhaps isn't isn't quite so intense over here. I mean, I think there are just going back to the the points you were both making about you know America and classical liberalism and 
the sort of our different political cultures, a couple of salient things which I'd sort of throw into that mixture is you have a constitution, we don't. I think the jury's out for me on which which arrangement is better. You have a president, we have a constitutional monarch. And I think you can, again, you can argue it both ways, but in in my view, having a constitutional monarch is actually not a bad compromise if you want to sustain some kind of, paradoxically, if you want to sustain some sort of democratic settlement, because it it, it functions a bit like the kind of autocratic grit in the, in the democratic oyster and just sort of holds everything together. Because at the end of the day, you know, trying to trying to have government by the people doesn't really make sense. And it always runs the risk of devolving into some kind of autocracy. So if you have a symbolic autocracy, then that's a kind of it's a compromise solution of sorts. So I would I'd sort of throw that into a mix because it still it still really matters. You know, I, I, I sort of I said flippantly, oh, people still people still really love the Queen, but but you know, it's it matters. You know, people take that stuff really seriously and and, and a lot of people wouldn't really quite be able to explain why, but we do. It matters. It's it sort of it, it anchors us to the past, and there's quite a lot of it, and that also makes a difference in terms of the political culture between Britain and the United mm. States. So there's just a lot more of it. We also, but I, I think the point I was sort of coming to is if you you take you you add together with those things the fact that there just isn't as much of Britain. You know, you you can't if if everything goes wrong, you can't just head west, and I think that's always been that's always been a big part of the American mythology. At least that that's been my sense. That there's a there's this mythology that if it all all just goes wrong, you can you can pack a bag and throw it in the pickup and just start again somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And one of one of the open one of the things I, I wonder about sometimes is that you know what what how is America going to get to grips with it when when you realise that you've run out of West? You know, one possible solution to that seems to be well, go colonise Mars. And but then there are there's a there's the guys who want to do that, and then there's also the guys who say who, who are saying, "Well, you know, what about what about sort of getting getting used to being in the place we're at?" And I, I'm I'm not sure which which of those sides is going to win yet, but I, I see both of those in mm-hmm. in the emoji in American conservatism. Mm-hmm. Let me ask about you mentioned two issues: one being sort of the transgender wars, and the other one being immigration. You you read <laughs> you read enough about trans issues that I think you said to Aaron for the podcast, you don't want to spend the entire time talking about gender issues. So I just want to, I want to touch on it briefly sort of within our context, which is to say, you know, my impression is that in Great Britain, there's sort of much more conflict over it. There's much more sort of popular comfort with, say, with taking the the trans skeptical side, the Jewish sort of prominent public people who are taking that side, that there's been success, which seems very different from the US, where, you know, be I I I think there's a great deal of skepticism in the population, but there are very few people in position of power who are publicly skeptical or exercising their public skepticism. So what do you do you do you see that difference? And to what do you attribute the sort of the 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 relative success of the more trans skeptical in in the UK versus the US. Why why is the movement played out differently there? Why is the movement I, played out the way that it has? The the most the most crucial difference I think has been Mumsnet. America doesn't have a Mumsnet. That that might seem that might seem can trivial. You, can you tell us um, what that is just for Mumsnet our... Mumsnet is an online discussion forum for parents. It's a it's a parenting discussion board. It's been going since the early noughties. It's it's very popular, hugely popular, and there are and it has it has a very strong it has a very strong culture as a message board. It was nicknamed by somebody who who doesn't like it very much, Prosecco 4chan, 
I mean, it's not, it's not like, it's not at all like 4chan. I mean, it's, it's, it's populated by, by middle-class normie months who, who mostly talk about like odd feeding and what products to buy. And, you know, it, it's a, it's a parenting discussion board, but it also, it also has a lively culture of discussing all manner of other things. And, and it provides a forum for ordinary mums to talk about stuff. And as such, people, people there on Mumsnet noticed the sort of new turn, the kind of postmodern turn in trans activism a long time before anybody else did. It, it has, it has a, it has a very, very, very active, very, very active radical feminist subset that's been going probably nearly as long as Mumsnet has. And they noticed it first and, and basically, and had been, had been a kind of radicalization pipeline for TERFs for like 15 years now. And the, the, the people who run Mumsnet have always taken a very free speech, pro-free speech line. You know, they've been careful to, to you know, they, they delete people for libelous content or for just grotesquely insulting people, you know, and they, people do occasionally get banned, but they've been, they've been very punctiliously trying to, trying to remain a space where, where their, their members can, can discuss openly their skepticism about some of the more sort of outre end of gender activism. And, and out of Mumsnet, which I mean, I've been a Mumsnetter for since the noughties. I don't, I don't have time to post there so much these days, but it was a, it was a huge part of my, my sort of forays through the internet. I love Mumsnet, it's brilliant. It's been, mum, women have been mobilizing there for, for well over a decade. You know, the TERFs, the, the British TERFs have been finding one another on Mumsnet in a way which is just not logistically so easy in America, partly because you're bigger, but also partly because there just isn't, isn't any one place which attracts normie mums and then turns them to <laughs> <laughs> it really is as straightforward as that. And so and then activist groups formed and then those turned, then those got a bit more, then they, they got a bit more formalized and then they picked up, picked up women from the trade union movement, which again, you don't have so much, I think in America, but we have a very you know, strong and lively culture of trade unionism. And so then once you, once you put those women and their organizing chops together with the sort of the, the base, the, the kind of turf base, they're very, very online months, you've got something quite potent, which I think is a, is a model actually for what genuinely change-making political activism looks like in the internet age, which is to say a lively, a, a lively and multitudinous base of anons who really, really, really believe in whatever it is that you're, that you want to make happen. And then, and then a tip of the iceberg of, if you like, face posters with some organizational ability who are willing to get out there and make it public. And that, that's, that's basically the template for any, any kind of political any sort of needle moving political activism you want to you you want to bring about these days at least if it's coming from the grassroots you know the astroturfing has a completely different playbook obviously but i mean i'm, I'm talking about i'm talking about genuine grassroots political activism this is what it looks like yeah um, and i don't know if that answers your question at all oh it does that's a great answer specific is that, is that it's contingent is that you know in in, in the uk there happened to be a hub around which this organized and yes there hasn't been at least as of yet which is i think actually a good instance of your point about, you know, there hasn't become this homogenization of, there hasn't been this homogenization of US versus UK political culture, that you can have these sort of contingent organizing hubs pop up in the UK and just doesn't replicate in the United States. Not necessarily, although there are probably equivalents. I mean, the other thing that complicates, or the, the other thing that's distinct between Britain and the United States when it comes to gender critical politics is that we don't, we don't have a Christian right to speak of in the UK. That's just not a thing. In this, I mean, you, you, get, you get the occasional, like, I mean, as, as I understand it, the, the evangelical right in America was a major political force in the kind of fusionist settlement that's, that's kind of on it, perhaps on its way out a little bit more now. But, but it just, it, 
British British conservatism or British, British politics just doesn't really have an equivalent to the evangelical right, though, or at least you know there are, there's about five of them, and people kind of think they're funny. It's it's just not a thing. Um, and and the gender critical activists who've emerged to come out of trade unionism, radical feminism, and sort of left liberal mumsnetters who believe in reality and who know that biological sex exists because they've grown humans in their own uterus and who are just like, no, this is this is obviously nonsense and we're not standing for it. So so it's it's and I think, you know, in the in the US there's a whole sort of there's a whole set of tribal considerations which come into play, which have just been signal signal jammed by the fact that that turfism is a left-wing phenomenon predominantly in the UK. Whereas, whereas in the US, you know, so women will stand up and be like, you know, trans women are not women, and chances are they're on the political right. And then let me ask about the the other political topic that you talked about, which is, you know, the the immigration issue, which is both similar and different to the United States. I mean, you know, there are obvious similarities. The United States, the UK and Great Britain have approximately similar foreign-born population shares. It's like 16% here, it's like 14% there. There are there are sort of restrictionist movements in both countries. You have similar sort of porosity problems. We're here in the United States with porous border with Mexico, and that leads to inflow of illegal immigration from Central America. There, until recently, there was a porous border with the EU, which was a border with Turkey and with Italy, which means inflow from the Middle East and Maghreb. But I think that you know it's it it it, it seems like immigration has been almost more of a mobilizing issue. Uh, in the UK, maybe that's just my outsider's perspective, but and that it was you know, I, my my impression is this part of what contributed to Brexit ultimately. So what do you what do you make of the sort of I mean the, the immigration debate as you said seems like a third rail in the UK, but so what do you make of the the success of people who are more restrictionist there? Well, it is it 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 is it's definitely a third rail. One thing I'd say just picking up on your point about Brexit, it's worth bearing in mind. It's probably something which doesn't come across so clearly, you know. 4,000 miles across the Atlantic, but there were in fact two Brexits. Um, and what I mean by that is that there were two Brexit, there were literally two Brexit campaigns and they had very different messages and they targeted very different demographics. And if there was, if you like, the kind of globalist Thatcherite Brexit who wanted to deregulate everything and then turn turn Britain into Singapore on Thames. And that was one, one fairly, fairly well-off, fairly minority outlook. You could call it the, the, the right liberal Brexit. Which which wanted whose ideal outcome was Singapore on Thames, and who just didn't really didn't really care about the rest of the country one way or another. And then there was the the populist Brexit, which is a completely different beast and had its own had a had a different campaign that was oriented that was directed towards it. So the Vote Leave one was much more about that was the polite Brexit, you know, that sort of mumbled stuff about you know the NHS and and you know occasionally occasionally talked about Singapore on Thames. And then there was the populist Brexit, who to, who who stuck who had Nigel Farage stomping around sticking up posters about how, you know, there was another wave of Syrians coming across the Turkish border. And when they allowed Tur- Turkey into the EU, it was just going to be wall-to-wall, wall-to-wall, I don't know, you know, boat people or whatever. And that was completely, completely different beast and completely different demographic that it was targeting. So that was, if you like, the C2DE demographics who live in the in de- depressed provincial post-industrial, you know, not non-metropolitan Britain, you know, who hold sort of broadly small C conservative values, whom who weren't madly, and, and those were the guys for whom immigration perhaps had a higher political salience, not least because from the point of view of a sort of C2DE or low-skilled worker, you know, flooding the country with, you know, foreign-born low-skilled workers who are probably going to live in a in a house of multiple occupation and earn a bunch of money very quickly and then leave again in the, in the process depressing your wages so you can't support a family in your own country or pay your mortgage. Mm-hmm. 
you know that that's a that's a meaningful salient and really you know personally damaging political issue and that's something you want to do something about you want to get your voice heard to say no actually we need restrictionism because it is not in my class interest this is not in my economic interests to drive down wages at the bottom end at the low skill end of the scale and, and that's a completely different ball game from the people you know so you know the financiers and the bankers and the londonists who who either have a sort of romantic conception of britain as being outside the european union and who have sort of theoretical objections to the idea of pooling sovereignty or else who want who who want to take back some of those some of those competencies from the EU so that they can so they can deregulate left right and centre strike trade deals with the with the USA or whatever or or, or or you know turn turn London turn London into a into something more like Hong Kong they're just two totally different sets right. of class interests and what we've seen since which was actually it was obvious at the time too I I I participated in the I I, I joined the campaign. And and on the ground, you know, at street level, grassroots out and vote leave were basically the same campaign. You know, we we were all friendly with each other and we leafleted together and you know ran stalls together and whatever. But in in terms of the leadership, there was a complete Chinese wall, or at least officially, there was a total Chinese wall between them. And 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 in terms of in terms of the demographics they were speaking to, it was there was a huge amount of difference. Because and and in, inevitably, you're going to find conflicts. You know, post Brexit. Between the people who wanted the people who wanted Brexit so they could deregulate and the people who wanted Brexit so they could so they could you know have have fewer fewer no skilled workers in the country, and and I think you know what's absolutely critical here is that I, what the, the most important point I want to make is that for all but the smallest minority it really is about class interests it's not about the color of somebody's skin, like you know the the British working class by and large are not very racist. You know, it's a it's a pretty multi ethnic place in the the UK yeah. these days, and it, certainly at working class level. You know, the the elite is probably whiter on average, but the British working class is very multi ethnic, and, and and British working people are just not that racist. It was about class interests, right? I I think we want to move towards sort of wrapping things up. I don't know if you had if you had closing thoughts, Aaron. Well, I guess maybe I'm curious. Just Mary, the sort of last question before we do our big takeaway is, you know. We've been talking about these different institutions. I mean, are there any particular British institutions or even just cultural distinctives that you think Americans should copy and presumably could in some way copy? And then are there any American institutions? I mean, we've been sort of beating up on America, but is there anything about America that you you wish maybe Brits would emulate? The one thing I like about Americans one thing I've always I've always really loved about Americans whenever I meet Americans is the willingness to just have a go at stuff. And by the, I'm not talking really about American institutions here, about but, but American people. Mm-hmm. You know, I've met I've met so many Americans who are just willing to you know turn up turn up somewhere where there's no stuff and just make and and create stuff. You know, build a house or you know start something start something from scratch. I think I think that's a that's a very lovely, very inspiring trait. And I hope you guys don't lose it in a fog of defeatism or I don't know post-industrial or whatever. And certainly, you know, with, with sort of you know a thousand a thousand plus years of of history, it can easily you can easily get a bit gloomy and just be like, oh, you know, the sort of five sets of ruins underneath where we are. Why would we bother building anything? And besides, the National Trust will have our guts for garters if we do. You can sometimes feel as though you're living amongst so much museum quality stuff that you know you can't really move. So so that's a that, that that's something which I which I always find refreshing. Refreshing in the US, even though also it produces some really bizarre architecture. Yeah. In terms of what what America America could, I don't know. You could just you could maybe 
what would I, what, what of Britain would I import into America given the choice? That's a really difficult question because you kind of already did. Glad we're so good. <laughs> it's a really difficult question because you kind of, you kind of already did. I mean, you've got our Puritans and, you know, I wouldn't wish those on my worst enemy. So, so we're not having them back. Thank you. Right. You, know, you could, you can keep them. I don't know. I would, I would, honestly, I would, I would, if I were you guys, I would have a constitutional monarchy. It's really good. It's much better than having a president. It's, it's, it's hard to set one up by fiat. We need to, you have to be invaded and conquered, really, is what you need. Or oh, you I don't know. But, but that, I, I think, I think you guys are well, well overdue a glorious revolution of some kind. I mean, maybe, maybe you need the absolute monarchy first, but I, I think every country should have a glorious revolution. So Trump, Trump will steal the election in 2024. <laughs> so, so we'll have another <laughs> January 6th. Okay. It will actually work. Trump will take over, but he will be a kind, benevolent monarch and he will, crown himself constitutional monarch and change the entire U.S. political order and all of our problems will be solved. And is that, we'll be is that, Trump that, for a millennia. Is that your takeaway for the week? No, my, my actual takeaway. Very can I just underline yeah. the fact that oh, I did not just say that Aaron just said that. <laughs> I, I, just, I, 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 okay, I should, I should clarify. I do not actually want Trump to do that. January 6th is bad. Right. I disavow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, actually, Mary, you said something that I think is good as a kind of my takeaway, which is, you know, you guys did import the Puritans to us. And I think that actually does explain a lot about our politics. I, you know, on this podcast, we try to look more at institutional structures instead of gesturing to vague cultural just so stories. But I do think ultimately institutions take shape in part because of the cultural currents and the demographics of who's there. And, you know, there is just a puritanical streak to American culture that you see on the left and the right that I think is, is a legacy of, of the people you exported to us. And, and it's something that, that just, I don't, yeah, I don't see as much in British politics, like the COVID hysteria, the woke stuff, and and then on the American right, I mean, the, the, the religious right, all of this does seem to have some root in. It, it stinks the groundheads. Like, yeah. Yeah, great. yeah. And I just I think that that is something that is hard for Americans to overcome. And but, you know, to, to be more positive, like there there can, I think, be some value to that puritanism. You know, it, it can lead to useful cultural antagonisms that maybe in the long run actually do have some beneficial effects. I don't want to be totally defeatist about it, but, but Charles, what, 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 what is this conversation left you with? Oh, I mean, I, you know, I, I sort of reinforced my special priors. A couple of the things that stuck out in the conversation were sort of ways in which the UK had a durable political culture in spite of American global cultural hegemony, a lot of which I think come down to the scale of society. And Mary, Mary alluded to this a couple of times, sort of, you know, yeah. whether it's whether it's the size of the United States or our, our sort of lack of tethering to our past because our past is much shorter or simply the number of people who are here. It's much harder to build unanimity. It's much easier to sort of flow down the paths of polarization that technology sort of tugs you towards because of scale. I'm not sure you can do anything with that. You know, is, is there a big takeaway to, to that? maybe not, you can't, you know, reduce the population in the United States by an order of magnitude in an ethical fashion. But I do think, I do think it says something that, you know, you, you, you can have a greater degree of political discourse of uniformity, which it seems like in many ways you're able to access in the UK 
you need less of this sort of American classical level, let alone, you know, laissez-faire tradition, precisely because you can have this, that sort of democratic, democratic agreement because of scale. So that's, you know, I think I, a theme that I think came up several times in the conversation that really stuck out to me. I think we, we want to wrap the show up. We always like to, Mary, we always like to end the show by offering our readers or our listeners, excuse me, some recommendations of things that are pertaining to the topic. So Aaron and I will offer ours and we'll invite you to plug your own work or things that you think are adjacent to your work. I'll go first. I'll claim that and encourage my recommendation this week is actually the work of one of Mary's colleagues at, at Unheard. He, he's in a bunch of places. The, the philosopher, John, the British philosopher, classical liberal John Gray, who's written for Unheard, who's written a number of books that I enjoy. My favorite of his is probably The Silence of the Animals, but he's a writer on the liberal tradition, after the liberal tradition, progressivism, atheism, and the intellectual currents of our times. So I encourage people to check him out as sort of a, a signal example of the modern UK intellectual tradition that I think does not get enough attention. I am going to recommend a particular essay that our guest wrote for American Affairs, and it's called Liberated Enough Feminism, Liberalism, and Conservatism. And in essence, it offers a kind of materialist history of sex roles and takes what you could call a kind of broadly technologically determinist view of the history of both feminism and liberalism and conservatism. There's a lot of good stuff in that essay. We can put it in the show notes, but I would I would just commend it to all of you. I think it's very, very well done. And Mary, any recommendations? Including shamelessly yeah. plugging your own work. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're interested, if any of you enjoy the the essay that Erin recommended, I'm writing a book which will expand on some of those themes at present. I'm having, I'm having an absolute blast writing it at the moment. It's going to be spicy as anything. The the working title is Feminism Against Progress, and it should be out at the towards the end of this year or possibly early into the next. Oh, wow. And so, so yeah, look out for that. You can find me at Unheard. U-N-H-E-R-D. I'm also going for anybody who's actually interested in the nuts and bolts of the Brexit campaign. This might be a little niche, but some of you may be politics nerds. I can highly, highly, highly recommend a book by Tim Shipman, which is called Fallout, two words, Fallout, mm-hmm. um, which which goes goes into, he's a, he's a fantastic journalist and a great writer. It's super engaging, just un, it, uh, more zippy than any political political document has any right to be. It's an absolutely banging read all about the Brexit campaign. Highly recommend that. Okay. Fantastic. Well, I think that's all the time that we've got today. Thanks, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, feedbacks, compliments, anything at all, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. I think that's everything. Until next time, I'm Charles Fain Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. Mm-hmm.